0: Good morning, everybody. We are going to wrap up our series out of the book of Romans this morning, and I want to say thank you to you because it's been nine weeks long, and I know uh, that's a challenge for my ADD brain, and I know typically our series, only well, about four or five weeks max, and so nine weeks, I know, is a long time. Uh, what I'm hoping is, is that uh, at least, and really, I would say Romans is one of the most difficult books of the Bible to understand. And so what I'm at least hoping is by the time that we leave this morning, you'll at least, at least, maybe if there's still some things that are confusing, but at least from a bigger picture, you'll be saying, oh, no, actually, I get that letter. I understand what Paul was trying to do, what was going on. And so we'll be in uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 14 is where we'll start. And then we'll conclude with chapter 16 uh, with the entire letter this morning. Now, after uh, this Sunday, don't forget, next week is Easter. Three services. Don't forget that next week. And then the week after that, we'll start a four-week series entitled In South Bend, As It Is in Heaven. And so we'll spend four weeks just kind of talking about Jesus' prayer in regards to South Bend and what does that look like for heaven to come here. Uh, Cheese fries are everywhere, uh, but that's just a little (laughs) tip where it's going to happen. And then after that, I'm excited. Uh, it'll be another longer series, but uh, we're going to do a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's going to be called Spirituality for the Depressed. So if you're depressed, you'll love this. It'll be great. So Ecclesiastes will be after that. Um, anyhow, um, if you've missed any of the uh, messages on Romans, you can go back to the website. They're, they're on podcast, um, and, and you can catch up on there. I think God deals in irony, and uh, I think God has a great sense of irony, and what I mean by that is He takes a situation that you would never suspect likely, and sure enough, God does it. Like, half of you kind of get it, the other half, like, at lunch, you go, oh, there's a car flipped over. I get the sign. That makes someone like If you think to yourself, uh, if, like, like, they would be the last person you would ever suspect God would pick to do, and then you fill in the blank, and then guess what God does? He picks that person, and you're left with that. You've got to be kidding me. God did what? You know, it's that sense of a plot twist. It's an irony. And what I think about the Apostle Paul, he is, in fact, in my mind, the, the quintessential irony that God uses in regards to his kingdom. Now, if you'll remember, Paul begins as Saul, and as such, he is a very devout and proud Jew. And Paul will often list his pedigree as he writes his letters. He'll say this to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, 22. He'll say, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Uh, referring to his own conversion experience, he'll say this in Acts 22, verse 2 and 3. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, it's referring to Paul here, they became very quiet. And then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, meaning Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, who was a respected rabbi at the time, and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors, and I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. In fact, Saul is so zealous for the law and for Judaism that he actually commits himself to persecuting and even putting to death followers of Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, we have the story of the very first Christian martyr, the first person to give his life for Jesus. His name is Stephen. And there in Acts chapter 7, the scripture makes it very clear that as Stephen is dying, Saul is there looking on and approving, giving his approval of the whole thing. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of their killing him. And I'm just trying to picture the scene in heaven as Stephen is dying, and maybe God looking over and saying to Gabriel or Michael the archangel, hey, you see that guy approving of Stephen's death? And then responding, you mean the zealous and devout Jewish guy, Saul? Yeah, Saul. I'm going to make him the apostle to the Gentiles. That both of them get out. Yeah, seriously, I'm going to send the most zealous of Jews to be the apostle who shares the good news of my son to the Gentiles. God, that's crazy. It's ironic. And and I don't think it is lost on Paul the irony of his own life story that he began here and now he finds himself being an apostle sent by God to preach the gospel of Jesus. And so he picks up on this theme here in verse 14 of Romans 15 is where I'm at. He says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Now, you remember all the issues they've got. This is a You are full of, there are a lot of things you can fill in the blank there, but Paul says, you are full of goodness. You are filled with knowledge and competent to even instruct one another. Yet I have written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. In fact, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. He's referring to why he's not made it to visit the church in Rome. So the the passage here begins a little bit of flattery and buttering them up, (laughs) like, You are full of goodness and filled with knowledge and competent to instruct. Now, this is the classic kind of speaking positively to somebody's life. Now, it's not a lie. This very well could be exactly what they are. It just needs to be brought out of them. And sometimes saying to someone, Let me tell you what I see in you. You are smart and you are a leader. And you are capable of, it, and then you, however, you for that blanket. Sometimes that's just the thing that they need to hear that draws that out of them. Like it's there, it's not, you're not lying, but it just calls that out. And teachers, you know this, right? You, you have sort of that positive reinforcement that sometimes is the thing that brings out the very best in one of your students. And in this, Paul will go on to acknowledge hey, I know that there's some things that I've written you that have been quite bold, but I just, I need to remind you of these things. And the reason why he has to give them a reminder is because the church in Rome is in conflict, and there's lots of anxiety going on in the church. And the moment you enter into conflict, and the moment you enter into anxiety, you're going to forget the positive things. In fact, what will happen is, in forgetting, you aren't going to act like the positive things, because anxiety does this. Like, I'm telling you, listen, good people, people who love Jesus, when they get anxious and afraid, they do stupid things. And if you just think about your own life, like just think about the worst decisions you've made in your life, I would almost guarantee it has almost always come out of that moment where you were anxious and you were afraid. Like we make the worst decisions when they're made out of that spirit of fear or that spirit of anxiety. Like, all right, just calm down for a little bit. Just kind of be patient and, and wait. And then you'd probably make a totally different decision. And what's happening is because of this anxiety and conflict in the church, they're not acting like they're full of goodness. They're not acting, and so Paul's trying to draw that out. Even as he's trying to sell them, uh, trying to say to them some very difficult things. But even in this section, Paul is reminding them that it is his calling as well as God's will that Gentiles sit side by side with their Jewish brothers and sisters, and they participate together in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news has come to them as well, and this is Paul's life, life's work. Paul even gives a little information about his missionary journeys here and his strategy. What he says to him is, he says, listen, I've been everywhere from Jerusalem to Lyricum proclaiming the gospel. Further, Paul likes to go, he tells us, where no one else has been. Like there's other Christian apostles, there's other Christian missionaries who they've started churches. Paul is not interested in going there and building on someone else's foundation. He wants to start from scratch. Like he is a true church planter. He's not a reformer. He's not even a local church leader or pastor. What he does is he goes into a city, typically a larger metropolitan city. He proclaims the gospel and he establishes a church. He just stays there for a little bit. Then he goes on to the next and does the exact same thing. So He doesn't stay long anywhere. He's a church planner proclaiming the good news, establishing a new community of believers. But Paul has other reasons for writing Romans. And in the last part of chapter 15, which we'll read in a moment, he reveals a few more of those reasons why he's writing this letter to the church, and as we've been saying, he's trying to work out the implications of the gospel of Jesus for a radically divided church. There is great tensions between the Jewish Christians and the Roman Gentile Christians in regards to leadership and style and culture. If you remember, because I've been saying that for nine weeks, this is the last time here. Everything went crazy after Emperor Claudius's edict kicking all of the Jews out of the city of Rome, including the Jewish Christians. Five years later, that edict was rescinded, and the Jews were allowed to come back home, and so what happens is those Jewish Christians came back to a dramatically different church in look, in feel, in style, and culture. It looked a lot more like the Roman Gentiles. And when that happened, conflict broke out, and they went so far as to even question the legitimacy of each other's salvation. So Paul does write to put together a church on the verge of literally separating of segregation from one another being a real possibility. But Paul will reveal a couple other reasons why he's writing. First, since he's already feels like his ministry is done in regards to the region of Jerusalem, to Lyricum, he sets his sight for the furthest western regions in the Roman Empire. Paul wants to go to Spain because he wants to run with the bulls. Paul wants to do missionary work in Spain and he is hoping to get the help of the church in Rome to do that so he would like to come he wants to hang out in Rome for a while and then have them be a supporter and sponsor of his missionary travels to Spain but before he gets there he's got to take some money to the Christians in Jerusalem that he's collected from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia because of the bad economic conditions of the Jewish Christians in the city of Jerusalem the poverty there is bad and even here Paul uses the offering as a theological point. What he's trying to say is, listen, you Gentiles have benefited spiritually from the Jews. At the very least, you can then help provide them financial benefits because they're in need. And so Paul is asking the Romans to pray for the offering that, that, that it'll be received well. And don't forget, like, there is this tension between the Gentiles and the Jews. All, it's not just in Rome. It's all over the place. And what Paul is hoping is, is this will be a build-bridging thing, like a, a, a bridge-building thing. That's how you say it, a bridge-building thing. Like, by bringing that money to, to, the, to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, that somehow their hearts will be softened towards one another. there will be greater peace and unity in the church. And sometimes you could see that. Like, even recently, I don't know if you saw these pictures out of Egypt, a lot of tension and conflict in Egypt. What you look at here is a picture of Christians who are surrounding Muslims who are praying during a riot that's breaking out to protect them and to keep them safe during their uh, time of prayer. And so it's this kind of bold uh, gesture of peace and love. And so in reciprocation, the Muslims then form a circle around the Christians, a church that they're having mass inside to protect them. and keep, Like there's sometimes you have that bridge building thing taking place. It's kind of what Paul is hoping is going to happen with this offering that he's about to take to Jerusalem, that it might be a thing that kind of brings the church together. So he asks them to pray. Here's how he says it, verse 23. This is how Paul says it. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there, for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared of the Jews spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So, after I've completed this task and I've made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain, but I'm going to visit you on the way. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution that I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy, by God's will, and in your company be refreshed, that God of peace be with you all. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, does Paul ever make it to the city of Rome? Yes, we know that Paul, it's recorded in Acts. Uh, he arrives in Rome. In fact, it, the book of Acts uh, ends with Paul, unfortunately, being under house arrest in Rome. He had that little ankle bracelet thing that he could go to <laughs> it, Did he ever make it to Spain? That we have no idea. Again, the book of Acts just leaves him in the house arrest in the city, and the Bible gives no indication that he ever left that city of Rome and made it to Spain. Now, outside of the Bible, there are two competing traditions that could go either way. One is that Paul was, in fact, killed and martyred there in Rome. And other traditions hint that he did make it to Spain. Uh, an early church father named Clement in 1 Clement, chapter 5 or 7, says that Paul did make it to the limits of the West, extreme limits of the West. is how it's worded. The Muratorian canon refers to Paul's journey to Spain. So there is some speculation he did make it. Ultimately, we do not know whether he ever made it or not. And then finally, Paul comes to the last section of his letter, And it's chapter 16, and I just want to give you a warning. There are a lot of names in chapter 16. Now, it isn't a genealogy, but it kind of reads like one. So to help you appreciate it a little bit more, let me try to set up chapter 16 uh, for us with this. You may have heard the story of Sir uh, Nicholas Winton. He is also referred to as the British Schindler. And he is credited with rescuing 669 Jewish children from Czechoslovakia from Nazi concentration camps during World War II. 669. He very quietly found housing and safe transport for all those children in an operation that would be known as, or could become known as, Kindertransport, which is German for children's transport. The world didn't even know about his work. In fact, he didn't even tell his wife, no doubt to probably protect her should he ever be caught. It was only later that she found his scrapbooks and the list of the names of all those children in the attic, and he pie- she pieced it together and figured out what he had done. In 2014, he received the Order of the White Lion, which is the highest honor given in the Czech Republic. In 2003. He was knighted by the Queen of England for services to humanity and he died not even two years ago at the age of 106. Isn't that crazy, 106. The world discovered his story after his wife sent his scrapbooks and lists to a Holocaust researcher and wife of a media magnet, which always helps, and the result was a BBC special in 1988 that looked something like this. Take a look at this video. All the letters. Back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diermont, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. (laughs) And it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. Is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? next is around the room. Just pass them around if you need it. So it's going to be all right. But in light of that backstory, all of a sudden, names on a list have great meaning and have great power. There are stories behind every one of them. And the story echoes another one that you might be familiar with about Oscar Schindler. Schindler was a German industrialist and an actual member of the Nazi party during World War II. And he is credited with saving the lives of over 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust by employing them in his enamelware and ammunitions factories, which were located in Poland and Bohemia and Moravia. In fact, he's the subject of a 1993 film adaptation of Schindler's List. Have you, anyone see uh, this movie, Schindler's List? Anyone see this? Um, as a side note, um, it was like in the late 90s. I was living in Abilene, Texas at the time. It was New Year's Eve. And on New Year's Eve, I watched two movies that night. One was Gandhi and the other one was Schindler's List. It was the most depressing New Year's Eve I've ever had in my entire life. It's like, why would you do this? It's just a terrible idea. Like, great movie, just don't watch it on New Year's Eve. It's a bad bad idea. Anyhow, the movie is a reflection of his life as he begins kind of as an opportunistic, uh, kind of motivated by that uh, and profit, but over time began to show extraordinary initiative and tenacity and dedication to saving the lives of his Jewish employees. By the end of the war, he had saved over 1,200 Jews from concentration camps through hiding them, and literally, he spent his entire life fortune on bribes to SS guards and officials, as well as black market supplies that were needed for his Jewish employees. And so, 1,200 names of individuals that were on his list that he kept as well were saved from death. In 1963, he was named Righteous Among the Nations by the Israeli government. It was a high honor that recognizes uh, non Jews who helped and rescued the Jewish people during the Holocaust. He died on October 9th, 1974, in Heidelstein, Germany, and he's actually buried in Jerusalem on Mount Zion, the only member of the Nazi party to be honored in this way. And so um, it was important to have your name on, like over 1,200 names on Schindler's list. In fact, um, I have a friend who has a friend that went to Israel to the Holocaust Museum, which is where they have Schindler's List. And uh, he asked the curator of the museum if he could have a copy of Schindler's List. And he said the curator was kind of taken aback by that and said, I don't think anyone's ever asked for a copy of the list. He thought about it for a moment and said, I don't know why not. So he made him a copy of Schindler's List. And so he made a copy for my friend. And I asked for one for my friend. So I got a third generation copy of Schindler's List from, I just, I thought, so I'm going to hand out copies of a fourth generation of all the. <laughs> but as I look at it, every name, is haunting to me in the sense that, the alternative would be horrible to behold. Should their name not be on this list, their lives are literally due to the fact that Oscar Schindler hired them as employees, and he spent his entire life fortune. To make sure that they stayed on the list, so you can imagine you, what it would feel like to be one of Gustav Fertig's descendants, whose name is on the list. To see the list and to see your great-grandmother's name on this list and know that your own existence is only possible because her name was on this list. There's power in seeing those names because it's no longer just a name in which we identify Frank from Tony. No, these names are the names of the rescued, and each name has an entire story accompanying it, and there's power in these names. So for those of you who are into genealogy and un, you understanding you, the feeling of connecting the pieces and learning from where you came from, which I, anyone else in the genealogy stuff in, in the room, a handful of you? Man, I, I love that stuff. Um, I, I think it was two Sundays ago, my parents showed me a picture of, this is my great-great grandfather, which explains why I'm so good looking. Like you could see how <laughs> on my my mom's side, I I, mean, I don't even know his name, so we have, we have to get his name, like I don't, I don't know what it is, but there's something so cool about like this is my kid's great, great, great grandfather. Like, it's my DNA in some way, in some part, comes from this dude. <laughs> Not a model, but he's like from that dude. There's power in names. And this is why there are so many genealogies in the scriptures. I know we tend to read them and think, oh, these are the boring sections of the Bible with names that are hard to pronounce. But actually, the, the, these are stories of who we are and where we belong and how we got here, and they give us identity. They root us into a much larger story that we are not the first, that we stand on the shoulders of many who came before us, and to some extent, we are who we are because of them. And so, Paul in Romans 16 will list names. He will commend some, and he will greet others, and I would encourage you, don't be bored with the names. Like, there's power in the names. There, there's meaning and implication. Can you, look, can you ima- just put your, imagine being a fourth-generation Christian and finding a copy of Paul's letter to the Roman church and, and going to the back of the letter so you can go down the list of names. There, right there. there that's my great-great-grandmother. She was a leader in the first church in this city. Like, well, there's just power in those stories. So it begins in this, chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, Now, let me say this, because Phoebe's going to get a commendation, and others will get greetings, and they're different. What this probably means is they don't know Phoebe, and that's why Paul is commending her rather than greeting her. He doesn't have a phone he could pick up and say, hey, I'm going to send you a woman. Her name is Phoebe. She's about five foot, six inches. She's got dark hair. She's got a mole on her right cheek. That's how you'll know it's her. And so what he has to do is in the letter, he has to commend her, most likely because Phoebe's probably the one who is hand-delivering this letter. And it's a form of authentication for Phoebe and for this letter that actually comes from Paul. And he'll even say, here's who she is. She is a deacon of the church in Sincrea. And I'm going to ask that you receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been a benefactor of many people, including me. So it's accommodation, sort of like an introduction to Phoebe. When she gets there, it's legit. This is from me. This is my letter. Receive her. If she needs any help, please give it to her because she has been a benefactor not only to many other Christians, but to me specifically. And so he'll go on to verse 3 and say this. So, and here's where the greetings come in. Now, they know this, the, these are the people who are in the church in Rome that he wants to say, hey, what's up? To. Verse 3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know if you remember this. We talked about this weeks ago. Paul met them in Corinth. And the reason why is, according to Acts chapter 2, they were a part of those the Jewish Christians that were kicked out of the city of Rome because of the edict of Claudius. And they were tent makers, just like Paul. And so they got to know one another there. It says in verse 4, They risked their lives for me. And not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So greet also the church that meets at their house. Which is another side note, like, um, the early church met in homes. Like, you would, you would not come to a building like this. You would not be sitting in chairs. Like you would meet in homes. And so there were probably several house churches throughout the city of Rome, and Paul's letter would be sent to each one of them to be read. Uh, that's kind of how it worked back then. And there was, apparently, in Priscilla and house, one of the churches met. He'll go on to say, Greet my dear friend Epin- Epinitus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. Now, there is a debate as to whether this means they were held in high regard by the apostles or if they were, in fact, outstanding apostles which we know, uh, apost- you had the original 12, but others were referred to as apostoloi or apostolos, apostles, because they were church planters. I mean, Paul himself is not one of the original 12, but he becomes known as the Apostle Paul because he is a church planter. It says, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stakes. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew, greet those in the household of Narcissus, which I like to know the backstory of that one, they're like, how'd you get that name? <laughs> who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, and I'm going to guess they're twins, like right? twin girls, like what should we call them? Tryphena and Tryphosa. All right, that's what we're doing. <laughs> those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Esencretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerusus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the people, Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now, a couple things about this list. The majority of this list would be Roman Gentiles. And that would speak that... At this point, the majority of the church now in Rome are Gentiles. It is also interesting to know that most of these names are those who were considered slaves or freedmen who at one time were slaves, but some on the list would be noteworthy. Paul will refer to those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus is actually the grandson of Herod the Great, and he was a friend of Emperor Claudius. He was probably not a believer. But at his death, his slaves would become the property of the emperor, but they would still be referred to as the household of Aristobulus. In verse thirteen, it mentions the name of Rufus. Do you know who Rufus is? He's mentioned in Mark chapter fifteen, verse twenty-one. Rufus's father. Do you know who it is? It's Simon of Cyrene. Do you remember the role Simon of Cyrene played at the crucifixion? He's one that actually in the end uh, carries the cross of Jesus. His son, Rufus, is in the city here of Rome, and so he gives his greeting. Uh, Narcissus, my guess is is the same thing as Aristobulus. He was not a believer, but he was friends with Emperor Claudius, and when Emperor Claudius died, Emperor Nero took over, and Emperor Nero's uh, mother was not much better, Agrippina was her name. She forced Narcissus to commit suicide, and this happened three or four years before Paul wrote his letter to the Romans here, and his slaves then would be part of the royal household. But if I might speak to the women in the house for just a moment. Because um, patriarchy, in the end, produces a bad rap for women. And patriarchy is the norm of the Roman Empire. Like, everything revolves around the paterfamilia, the father of the household. He is the head of the household. In fact, all the household codes in the New Testament are founded in this context and culture of patriarchy. And it's not even necessarily unique to Christianity. Like, other Roman philosophers and historians will provide household codes as how you should conduct yourselves that will look and mirror very much the ones we have in the New Testament. But because of patriarchy, what happens is, the result is, in the church, there tends to be a downplaying of the role and place of women in the church. Now the secret is, everyone knows, if it weren't for women, the church would ground to a halt as soon as it starts. But women in denominations and throughout history have been restricted in regards to their role and function, and I would just like to point out, at least from Romans 16, you wouldn't be able to tell that from this list in Romans 16, because women are highlighted and are praised for their service and their leadership from Phoebe to Priscilla to Mary to Junius to Tryphena and Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus's mother, Julia, Nerissa's sister, Olympus. Women were in every way co-workers with Paul in the kingdom of God. And what you see is a diverse community of individuals who served and worked in the kingdom of God, and Paul loves them, and he sees them as co-workers. They have been a part of a great work, and their names will live on for 2,000 years. Now, Paul will shift next in verse 17 and give just some practical guidance. He'll say this in verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Just keep away from them. You hear what he's saying there? Now, he's already having to deal with so many things going on in terms of conflict, and this happens to Paul everywhere he goes. So this is, this is really important for Paul. Like, there are people who just want to cause division, and they just want to put obstacles in your way that are contrary to what you've already learned from them. Like, just just stay away from them. Like, just keep away from them. That's what he's saying. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. And everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise and, 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 and about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And this this is just a reality that sometimes... And sometimes it's a, it's a contextual thing. Sometimes people could just be toxic, right? Like, And churches are not immune from that. Sometimes there just could be a, a toxicity that exists. It might be just the context of this isn't the right church for you. Like, if you went to another one, like, you'd be great there. Like, you, you wouldn't be offended all the time. Like, you'd be able to serve... Well, like, uh, for whatever reason, it just... I wish I would have learned this lesson years and years ago. I think because it's a church, sometimes you think, oh, well, I mean, everybody just has to stay, that wants to stay. And that doesn't see what Paul says at all. Like, no, there's some people, like, they're just always looking to be offended, and they're toxic, and like, like just stay away from them. Like, note them. Th- this church might be for, y- for you, but there's no one out there that's going to be great. Division is too costly to the mission and vision of Jesus. And those who are set on division, he says, just keep away from them. But to those he's writing to, everyone's heard of your obedience. Be wise about what is good and innocent, about what is evil. Satan's going to be crushed. Don't worry. And then he kind of gives a final, hey, what's up, from everyone with, who's with me. Like, they all send, they want to say hello, too. So here's their list. Verse 21, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius and Jason and Suspeter, my fellow Jews. And here's an interesting thing that you see in verse 22 here. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Oh, like Paul didn't even write this letter. Like he's, tra- it's being transcribed. He's got a, a scribe. He's got a, a secretary who's writing. He just kind of, he's orally giving him the points, and, and Tertius is, is writing it all down. And this isn't the first time we've seen this, and most likely it's because of Paul's eyesight is not very good, and so he has to have a scribe that will uh, will transcribe his letters for him. He'll go on, to verse twenty-three. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Now, just a little interesting side note, uh, archaeologists have actually seen an inscription with Erastus's name in it. He was kind of like the city treasurer, which is a big deal, and belonged to the church there in Corinth. And then Paul ends his letter with a final benediction. And I will end the series then with this final benediction. If you wouldn't mind, I'm going to ask, if you would mind standing, let this be our final... Word, and I want you to note even in the benediction, Paul's central themes of the letter remain. And Paul ends as he begins, the gospel of Jesus. And how that gospel is truly good news, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. That that gospel has the power to break down, listen, it doesn't eliminate it. It just means that whatever thing like whatever differences of socioeconomic status and ethnicity and political opinion, like they get transcended in Jesus because of the gospel so he says this in verse 25 now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles including us might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Be seated.